Well, we're back in Haggai today, and we're going to move forward through a few more messages. And before the summer is over, we're going to try, God willing, we're going to finish the book of Haggai. Uh, and today, we're going to work on the last part of the chapter. Uh, Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Uh, a few weeks ago, we saw how Haggai began with a rebuke when he came out with the message. And I love it how Abner put it last time that Haggai came out swinging. Right? He came out swinging. He said, you have time for yourself, but you don't have time for God. You have time to make your houses fancy, but you don't have time to build God's house, which lies in ruin. He said, you have time to worry about yourself, but you don't have time to worship God. He says, take this rebuke to your heart and consider this. And then when Haggai unleashed this confrontation on the people, we then saw how God laid out a detailed description of true obedience in building the temple that he was commanding the people to do. He said, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and you yourselves rebuild the temple because it's not going to rebuild itself. And make sure that you have the right motivation when you do this so that I, God, will be pleased with it, so that I, God, will be glorified through it. And so having come to this point of the text of the chapter, the question we want to ask is, how will the people respond? Will they repent? They've heard the rebuke. They've been told what they need to do. And so the question is, will they repent or will they reject the word of God? And as we look at this next portion of Haggai, Haggai 1, 12 through 15, we see that they demonstrate true repentance. After many years of disobedience, they finally repent. But this is one of those cases where it's better late than never. Remember that parable that Jesus gave about the two sons in Matthew 21? A man had two sons, and the man said to one of his sons, go today and work in my vineyard. And the son said, yes, I will go. But he doesn't. And the father said to another son, go to my vineyard and work in that vineyard today. And the son said, no, I've got other things to do. I'm not going to go. But then the son felt regretful about this. He repented, and he went in the end. And so as Jesus brought this parable, Jesus asked, which of the two sons did the will of his father? And note that Jesus did not say which one of the sons is better or which one of the sons is more noble, but he said which one of the sons did the will of his father, because that's the issue with obedience and disobedience, right? It's the question of, are you doing the will of God the father? And the people said, the one who repented and obeyed. And this is what we see with the Israelites in Haggai. The Israelites are like that son who first disobeyed, but then repented, and then did what God the Father was commanding them to do. And the lesson for us is clear. It's straightforward. Repent, and God will forgive. So think about your own life. If you've been clinging to sin... Repent, and God will forgive. If you've become so apathetic because you've been living in sin for so long, the message is repent. This is what we see with the Judeans in this chapter. They repent. And so as we look at this part of Haggai, we see three aspects of true repentance. 
the people's fear of God, the presence of God with the people, and then the people's submission to God. Now first, as Haggai begins to discuss the repentance of the Israelites, he shows that one of the aspects of true repentance is the fear of God. When the people hear Haggai's message, they individually receive the message of Haggai as the very word of God, and they fear God. Look at verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, listened to the voice of Yahweh their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as Yahweh their God had sent him, and the people feared Yahweh. Now, as Haggai begins to talk about Israel's repentance, he begins by showing that the repentance of the people is individual. That's the first thing he brings out. Just as he had done earlier, he once again lists every class of the Israelite society. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, who's the governor, Joshua, the high priest, and then all the remnant of the people. He could have easily said, just simply said, all of the people of Israel repented. But instead, he lists each of these groups. He wants it to be clear that each class of the Israelites repented on an individual basis because that's what you have to do in order to have a relationship with God. It doesn't matter if you're a prince or if you're a priest or if you're a regular person, you have to repent individually in order to have a relationship with God. And this is similar to how Zechariah, Haggai's contemporary, when he talks about the repentance of Israel at the end of time, in Zechariah chapter 12, this is how he describes their repentance. He says in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 12, that the land, when they see Christ, the land will mourn each family alone, the family of the house of David and the family of the house of Nathan, that's the royal line, the family of the house of Levi and the family of the Shimeites, that's the priestly line, each family alone and their wives alone. Every class of Israel repents on an individual basis. And this is what Haggai is saying is happening here as well. When Zerubbabel heard the confrontation from Haggai, he wasn't too proud to repent. And this wasn't always the case with the Israelite kings, as you know. They didn't always humble themselves. They didn't always repent. King Zedekiah, a Judahite king, he was responsible for arresting Jeremiah the prophet and throwing him into a cistern which didn't have water and so it had only mud and he nearly drowned in the mud and nearly died. According to Jewish and Christian tradition, King Manasseh, one of the evil kings of Israel, he had Isaiah sawn in half. And Jesus says in Matthew 23:35 that this was done to many prophets. Jesus says, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, possibly the contemporary of Haggai. But this was not the case with Zerubbabel. He humbles himself and he repents. And the same thing is with Joshua the high priest. He also shows humility and repentance. The title priest doesn't immediately or necessarily mean that you're always righteous and you're sinless. The priests also needed to repent and some did and some didn't. You can remember the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they were priests, and yet because of their sin and their lack of uh, repentance, they were incinerated by God for their strange fire in Leviticus 10. 
Remember Caiaphas, the high priest in the New Testament? Well, it was this high priest who condemned Jesus to death in Matthew 26. So the repentance of Joshua, the high priest, it's not a small thing. Joshua, the mediator between God and man, he essentially says, I have sinned. <clears throat> he says, I have sinned. And so he repents. And with the political leader and with the religious leader, the high priest, uh, Joshua, the people of Israel, all the remnant of the people, they also repent, Haggai writes. And this is a great awakening happening in Judah right now. We saw a great awakening in the book of Jonah when all of the Ninevites repent. And now we see a glimpse of an awakening among the Judeans who return from exile and who at first they don't submit to God and they repent at Haggai's preaching and then they do obey God's commandments. This is only a glimpse though of the great awakening because later on, Paul writes in Romans 11.25, we're going to see a time when all Israel will be saved. In Judah, during the time of Haggai, we see this on a smaller scale, but we see them repenting. So the fact that Haggai lists each of these parts of society in Israel shows that everyone has to repent for their own sin. Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul who sins will die. And then as Ezekiel continues in this chapter in verse 9, God says there, if a man walks in my statutes and my judgments and is careful to do the truth, he is righteous and he will surely live. So it's not enough to be part of a Christian family. It's not enough to be part of a Christian community. It's not enough to be part of a good Christian church. These are great blessings, no doubt. But each person has to repent of his or her own sin. Now, while showing that repentance is individual, Haggai also shows that repentance begins with receiving the word of God as the word of God, not just as opinion of man. Haggai says that when he, Haggai, preached, the Israelites listened to the voice of Yahweh their God. Haggai preached and the people heard the word of God and they recognized this. Now listening is fundamentally important, especially when it comes to scripture. We see this all the way back in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel. And that verse is actually called the Shema. And the Shema literally means the listening, the hearing, because that's how important it is to listen. But listening is not enough. You have to listen and you have to acknowledge the word of God as the word of God. One of the most common accusations of the Bible is that it's not actually God's word. It's man's word. It's man's opinion. Think about it. Who wrote the Bible? <laughs> Wait, I said think about it. Don't answer. <laughs> I can hear you thinking. <laughs> well, we have Moses, right? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses murdered a man when he was 40. 
He was a sinner. David wrote 75 Psalms. He was an adulterer and a murderer. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, various Proverbs. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Even Jesus faced this problem in his time when he preached in his own hometown. And he was God. When he preached, the people said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary with us? Aren't his brothers and sisters with us? So this accusation against the Bible is always going to exist. It always existed. It exists even today. But this wasn't the case during Haggai's time. Haggai said that the people heard the word of God and that they accepted it as the word of God for what it really was. And this is exactly what Paul was thankful for to, the, to God during the, when he was preaching to the Thessalonians. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing that when you Thessalonians received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. This was how the Israelites received the word of God from Haggai, as the word coming directly from Yahweh. And Haggai said that they received this word as coming from their God, their personal and covenant God. So even though this was a difficult rebuke, something hard to hear, the people didn't receive it as a condemnation from Haggai, from a man. They received it as a word from God who deeply loved them. And this is a reminder to us as well that everything that is written down in the Bible is the word from our God and for our good. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it's from God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And this means, practically speaking, that we cannot be casual with the Bible. We must study it. We must acknowledge its truth. We must apply it to our lives in every detail that it speaks. Well, as Haggai shows that repentance is individual and that you have to receive the word of God as the word of God, Haggai shows that the response of true repentance is to fear God. Haggai says at the end of verse 12, and the people feared Yahweh. Now this attitude of fear does not only refer to respect, which it does, but it also re refers to actual terror. Listen to Psalm 119 verse 120. The psalmist says, my flesh quakes for dread of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Isaiah 66 verse 2, God describes a righteous person and he says, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. True fear includes both terror and respect. And we were just talking about the police, and we, we know that today that the police do not get respect, and people are not afraid of the police. And I remember, this made me remember the first time that I encountered the police by being pulled over by them. I was 16, just got my driver's license, two months, three months of you know, after I got my driver's license, and I get pulled over, and I wasn't speeding, okay? I get pulled over because one of my turn signals didn't work. 
And so uh, the police officer comes up, comes up to my uh, window and he says, can I see your driver's license? And I say, sure. So I go for my wallet. I don't have my wallet. <laughs> I'm like, this just went from bad to worse. So I say to him, officer, I'm so sorry. I don't have my wallet with me. And he says, well, do you have a driver's license at all? And I said, yes, I have a driver's license. He said, very nice. He said, give me your name, and then I'll go check it in the system. So I said, my name is Joseph Zakovich. Spelled it for him, of course. <laughs> and uh, so he went back to the car, and then he comes back, and he comes back with his stern face, and he says to me, you know, it's not good to lie to the police. And I'm thinking, what is going on? <laughs> so he says to me, can you please step out of the car, sit on the curb, and then he said to me, cross your feet like this. I guess they do that, right, so that you don't run away. They didn't know I couldn't run anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> and so he says, I checked in the system. There's no Joseph Zakovich in the system. Do you want to tell me your real name? And I thought, my name's not Joseph. My name's Yosef. <laughs> On the driver's license, it says Yosef, I-O-S-F, because that's my official name. And so I said to him, I'm so sorry. My name is Yosef. It's spelled I-O-S-I-F. And very nicely, he went back and he checked in the system. And there it was, Yosef Zakovich in the system. And so he let me go. He didn't even give me a ticket, Terry. <laughs> but I got to say, that wasn't the highlight of my life, okay? I had both fear and respect for the police. But this is something that is lacking in our culture today. And yet when you think about God and our relationship to God, the Bible calls us to a fear that includes terror towards God. And when I was there with, when the police officer pulled me over, I was doing everything that he told me to do because of that fear. And that's what fear does. It inherently controls what you do. And this applies to our conduct with God as well. We have to fear God. Someone who fears God is controlled by God. Someone who does not fear God is not controlled by God. True repentance reflects true fear of God. And this fear of God results in true obedience. One commentator said, True fear of God involves a healthy fear of offending God and a righteous awe and respect for God. And so as we look at Israel at this point of the chapter, Israel's repentance means that the Israelites feared Yahweh. Well, after showing that true repentance consists of fearing God, Haggai then shows that true repentance means that God is with you. As Haggai continues to talk about the repentance of Israel, he encourages them at this point, and he says that God is with those who repent. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of Yahweh, spoke by the commissioned message of Yahweh to the people, saying, I am with you, declares Yahweh. God wanted Israel to know that they were not taking on the task and the challenge of rebuilding the temple on their own, but that God was going to sustain them in doing this. God previously sent Haggai to confront the people, and now God sends Haggai to encourage the people. And this is the amazing beauty of repentance. God is readily willing to forgive us. 
he's readily available to forgive us and to restore our relationship with him and his relationship with us. And God's words, I am with you, is an immense expression of God's patience and God's grace towards sinful Israel. For hundreds of years up to this point, the Israelites, when, from the time that they were in Egypt, God had, been, God had been patient with them while they continued in their rebellious state. God was patient with Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. God was patient with Israel when they entered the land and then they had one kingdom. Then because of their sins, the kingdom split into two and God was patient with them throughout that time. Then God sent northern Israel into exile because of their sin and Judah remained and God was patient with Judah while they were still in their land. And then ultimately God sends Judah into exile for their sins. And so you could look at this and you could say, well, God is done with Israel. But for 70 years, behind the scenes, God is waiting for Israel to repent. And 70 years later, God brings Judah back to the land so that they could build a temple and live as a people of God. But when they return for 18 years, Israel refuses to obey God and they refuse to rebuild the temple. So God sends Haggai to confront them about this disobedience. God didn't have to send Haggai, he could have easily said, I'm done with you, Israel, with your disobedience. But God does send Haggai. And when Israel repents, God's gracious response is, I am with you. I'm with you not because you have been faithful to, to me. I forgive you. And this is God's character. To forgive and to be with those who are his own. This is what we see in Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verses 10 and 11, the psalmist says that when the world around you is falling apart, don't fret because God is with you. In verse 10, God himself says, be still or cease striving and know that I am God. I am sovereign God, God says. And then in verse 11, the psalmist says, this sovereign Yahweh is with us. And this is the very message that Jesus left for us as well in Matthew 28. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus says there, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And then he says, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the message of the presence of God that Haggai is bringing to the Judeans. God is with you. And at that time, the Israelites needed to know that God was with them because their enemies had been oppressing, oppressing them for all of these years that they were in Judah. This is why God says later on in Haggai chapter 2, Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, O people of Israel. And he says, I am with you. When the people tried to rebuild the temple, you remember I said this last time, that uh, Ezra chapter 4 describes how the enemies around Israel began to persecute them, began to oppress them. The people of the land, the enemies discouraged the people of Judah. They frightened them from building the temple. They hired counselors to attack them. So that as soon as the Israelites begin to build, the enemies begin to oppress. And so this is what the people had in mind when Haggai comes to them and says, rebuild the temple. Those years of oppression is what they kept thinking about. 
But God wanted the Judeans to know that even if they persecute you, you're the enemies, I am still with you and I will sustain you. And this is something that is hard for us to remember, unfortunately. Sometimes we act like the servant of Elisha, the prophet from 2 Kings 6, who couldn't see that God was protecting Elisha. When Aram, the country just north of Israel, was attacking Israel, Elisha, the prophet, and his servant, they found themselves in a life-threatening situation because whenever Aram would plan to attack Israel, Elisha, the prophet, was able to get this information from God and he would give it to the Israelite army and so they would discover what Aram was going to do and they would overcome them. Well, Aram, the king of Syria, was frustrated with this and so the king sent horses and chariots and many soldiers, it says in 2 Kings 6, and they surrounded the place where Elisha and his servant were staying. And so when Elisha's servant gets up the next morning, he sees that their entire place where they're staying is surrounded by horses and chariots and armies and the army of the Syrians. And he says, Elisha, this is terrible. What are we going to do? We're doomed. But Elisha replies calmly and he says to him, don't be afraid. There's more of us than of them. There's two of them. There's an entire army of Syrians. And so the servant says, how can you say there's more of us? There's only two of us. And so Elisha prays to Yahweh and he says, oh Yahweh, open his eyes that he may see. And God opens his eyes and he sees the reality. 2 Kings 6.17 says that he sees that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around the place where they were staying. That's the reality. God opened the eyes of the servant so that he would see that God with his army of angels was with Elisha and his servant. And Haggai was saying this very thing to the Judeans that God is with you. Therefore, you do not need to fear. And with this encouragement, I am with you, or this encouragement, I should say, I'm with you, is a perfect message at this time. Because God is telling him, build the temple, which means that God is in your presence. And so God is saying, make it visible that I am with you, which is the reality that I already am with you. Make it an outward action showing to the nations that the presence of God is with you because I am with you. And so having received this encouragement, the Judeans were ready to respond and fully obey God. And this is our third aspect of true repentance, submission to God. As Haggai discusses the repentance of the Israelites, he shows that a third aspect of true repentance is submission to God. When the people heard the confrontation from Haggai, they ultimately obeyed and they demonstrated their repentance by their works. Look at verses 14 and 15. So Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work on the house of Yahweh of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius 
the king. Haggai says that the obedience of the people, notice this, begins specifically when God stirs all the people to obey God. When God stirred them up, he moved them to take action. God had said earlier, I am with you. Well, now we see that God is with them from the very outset, even to the point of moving them to obey God. This is one of those real-life examples of Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, show that you are saved by your works. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Obey God, but know and be encouraged that God is working in you to give you strength to obey him. This is how God was with the Judeans, and this is the message that Haggai was bringing to the Judeans. God actually stirs his people and causes the people to obey God. And because God stirs them to act, we see that the people show their repentance by obeying and by beginning to build the temple. John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And this is what the Israelites do at this point. Earlier in verse 8, God called Israel to go and to bring wood. Well, in verse 14, Israel begins to fulfill this. They came out from their homes. They went to all the different places to get the wood. And then they came to the house, to the place where they needed to build, and they built the house of God. And they viewed this work as obedience to God who was their personal God. The verse says that they were building this house for their God. There was a personal intimacy in the work that they were doing. They didn't do it begrudgingly or out of some kind of an uh, obligation of some sort. They did it because they loved God and they wanted to honor God. You know, and in all this, we see that the Israelites were zealous to obey God. They weren't dragging their feet. The chapter ends, and you can look at the end of this verse, the chapter ends by saying that the people began building the temple on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Now what this means is that the people went from hearing the rebuke to the point of actually building the temple in 23 days. 23 days, that's less than a month. Then you might say, 23 days, well, that's a lot of time. I mean, you can do a lot of things in 23 days, right? What did they do, take a vacation before they got to work or something? Well, look at it this way. For 18 years, Zerubbabel and Joshua are not able to get the people to build the temple. In 23 days now, Zerubbabel and Joshua mobilize the entire nation. We're talking about thousands of people. They delegate all of the responsibilities. They gather the materials and they begin rebuilding the temple. You can see that the people were unified and the people were passionate about fulfilling this task. And this demonstrated that the people were committed and that they had courage. Ezra 5 writes that when Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all of the people began to rebuild the temple, their not-so-friendly neighbors, as expected, began to attack them. Ezra 5.3 says that Tatnai, that's the governor of the enemies, 
uh, with his uh, team, uh, Star Boznai and other colleagues, they came and they said to the Israelites, who issued a decree to rebuild this house and to complete this structure? In other words, who gave you permission to do this? But they weren't intimidated by this. They didn't stop building. Verse 5 says, the enemies did not stop them from building the, from the, building the temple. And so as a result, the enemies send a complaint to Darius the king. And as they're sending this complaint, they actually describe for us to see how diligent the Israelites were. In verse 8, in Ezra 5 verse 8, uh, they write, Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, and it is being built with huge stones, and timber is being put within the walls, and that work is going on with all diligence, and it is succeeding in their hands. So in this letter, the enemies, the letter which is supposed to condemn the Israelites, the enemies describe for us how committed and courageous the Israelites were. So we could ask at this point, what happened that made the Israelites turn from rejecting God for 18 years to submitting to God in 23 days? And the answer is in verse 14. Yahweh stirred up the spirit of the people. God empowered the lives of the Israelites as they came to him in repentance. And God did take care of them. He orchestrated the circumstances in such a way that they would be able to rebuild the temple and complete it. Ezra writes that when the enemies went to Darius to complain about the Israelites, Darius responded by commanding the enemies to leave them alone, leave the Israelites alone, and to pay for building the project. Now, I know this is unbelievable, right? Hard to believe. So here's what it says in Ezra 6, verse 7. Darius said to Tatnai and all the enemies, leave that work on the house of God alone. Let the Jews rebuild the house of God. And then in verse 8, Darius says, moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you shall do for these elders of Judah. The full cost of the temple is to be given to those people from the royal treasury out of the tribute of the provinces beyond the river. Leave them alone and give them your money. That's what Darius decrees to the enemies. If the enemies had stayed quiet, the temple would have been built and everything would have been done at that point. The enemies did not stay quiet. The temple is still built and the enemies pay for that temple right you can't make this stuff up this is God acting and God orchestrating the situation there's no way to explain this but this does remind me of another situation where God does a very similar thing where Moses's mother puts Moses into the basket into the little ark into the river right and then they watch him and then Pharaoh's daughter comes and uh, she finds him and she takes him and then she goes to Moses' mother and she says, here's the baby, watch him, raise him and I will pay you for it. Right? What a deal, right? <laughs> what a deal. Right? But this is only of the expenses. And that's what God means when he says, I am with you. 
God resolved it. God resolved the situation in a way that the enemies couldn't even, that the Israelites, I should say, couldn't even imagine. Well, let me conclude with this. Haggai comes to the Israelites when they're disobeying God. And he says to them that if you want to restore your relationship with God, repent. Fear God and submit to him and God will be with you. This will restore your relationship with God. But this exhortation to fear God and to keep his commandments applies not only to restoring the relationship, but also to living out our entire relationship with God during our lives. If you want to have a full and a fulfilled life, this is how you are to live during your life. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, the end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments because this is the end of the matter for all mankind. Haggai and Solomon are saying the same thing. Haggai focuses on restoring your relationship with God to have a full life. And Solomon focuses on continuing your relationship with God. And then you will have a full life with God. Now you might say, well, what about love? Shouldn't you love God? And Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Fearing God and keeping his commandments is the demonstration through your life of your life, of your love for God. If you live a life of obedience to God, for God's glory, as Haggai says in 1.8, then you're showing through your life that you love God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that we're able to look into it and to see how patient you are, how loving you are, how forgiving you are. And Lord, as we look at these times with Haggai and the Israelites and how patient you were with them and that you called them to repentance and that when they repented, you forgave them and you said you would be with them. Lord, we thank you for that. We find this so encouraging and so insightful and also something that governs and guides our lives towards repentance, towards you. Lord, I pray that this would be something that causes us to look to you, to, to reject our sin, and to repent. Lord, may all of our actions, may all of our thoughts, all of our words, Lord, may they please you, and may they be all for your glory. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.